Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good, good. We are continuing through the book of Ephesians, and we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We ended at verse 21, but we are going to continue actually at verse 21, because tonight I'm going to be talking about this passage of husbands and wives, this wives submit to your husband's passage. And I don't know where you're coming from, what your background is, both uh, maybe in a religious sense or even in just a social sense. I know that there have been times where I have talked to people who are not people of faith, who have gone to, to a church on a morning when this passage was taught, and they left and they say, well, I'll never go back there again, because of the way they felt that this passage really constrained them. And I think it's important that we understand the dynamic of this passage. This passage is going to require a little bit more background than we usually devote to a text because I feel that it's important. And before we jump into this passage, I want to read Galatians chapter 3 to you, verse 26 to 29. Paul, the same author, writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now, I've heard it said that all means all, and that's all all means, right? You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so if we are Abraham's seed, if we are all one, if there is neither free nor slave, Jew or Gentile, male nor female, but this unity of humanity in Christ, then what is Ephesians talking about? And what we're going to do is look at an interpretive background where we want to know more than just what do the scriptures say, but why do the scriptures say that? See, a lot of times people will say, well, the Bible says, but I need to know why does the Bible say the Bible say women should not go out without their head covered. I don't see any of you ladies here tonight with your heads covered. You're all not obeying the Bible. Because the Bible says women should have their heads covered. What does the Bible mean? See, that's important because then when you go into the cultural setting, we see that Paul is trying to deal with a problem in Corinth that was taking place when he talked about women having their heads covered in Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. And so more than just what does it say, what does it mean, why was it written, and what are we going to get from that? Understand, God's word is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. But we've got this eternal message of God that's coming into these temporary cultural settings. And when it enters into this place, not only do the cultures come and go, but every culture changes over time. Look at our culture, American culture. Look where we were 20 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. And now we're talking about a culture that's some 2,000 years ago. And so there's going to be a dynamic in that culture that is being addressed And what we need to do is understand what is being said at that time. The message is specific to a culture or a time. If we don't recognize that, we can suffer the loss of its meaning in places, like women must have their heads covered. There are some places where they do. They feel that you have to have your head covered. If you don't go to church with your head covered, you're in sin. Why? Because they're not culturally understanding what Paul was writing, and so they're just taking it verbatim. And you have to give them credit. Well, that's great that they appreciate the value of Scripture, that it is holy and it is you know, God's word given to us, but God has given us wisdom to understand and to be able to interpret. And it's important that we do. Otherwise, we can find ourselves in some problems with that. You see, 
I don't think anyone here has ever returned their enemy's stray donkey. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. But in Exodus 23, that's what it says. And it doesn't make Exodus 23:4 irrelevant. It, it makes us require special handling. We have to look at what was he talking about when he said that. When you have to return your enemy's donkey, what was the point of that at that culture? Because I haven't had to return anybody's donkey. But I might have had to return an iPhone, right? Is there something similar that can be applicable there? And so changing cultures requires a dynamic process of interpretation. We, we need God's spirit to enlighten us, to see the purpose of these texts. And I don't think it's hard. I don't think it's a difficult thing. I, I think it's a common sense way to actually deal with some of these things, to find relevant meanings in a cultural conditioned text. And, and so we're going to look at two ways. One is when a command is specific to a time or situation, what we do is we generalize it. We, we look behind it. What is the guiding principle for this commandment? Paul does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, where he, he generalizes and he says, don't muzzle the ox that treads on the grain. He's taking a passage from the Old Testament, and now he's generalizing. That was specific for here, but now he applies it to a broader sense that we are to treat servants humane. We are to take care of them. We are to allow them to enjoy the benefits of their labor. And so here was something that was specific to the time, but Paul now generalizes it so that we can understand it. See what he's saying? Here's something specific at this time. How do we understand it in our time? And then the other thing is we, we see a command that is general. We need to specify it. A general command might be, thou shalt not steal. It's general. Well, now we have to determine how does that specifically apply to us? Because it applies to us probably in a broader sense than it did to them. Here, they're worrying about donkeys and we have to worry about copyrights. We have to worry about, you know, just fraud prevention. Someone stole my identity. Can you imagine the people in Moses' time hearing that term? Identity theft? What? You know, some kind of spiritual hocus pocus going on. They stole your identity. What is that? You see, but now we've taken something that was general and we've given it some specific understanding because of the culture that we live in. The truth is the same. It hasn't changed. But we have to see how it applies to us. And if we try and just take how he spoke it to this time and put it in our time, you're going to find some people having some questions. It's going to come across in some way where... They're wondering. Paul is writing to a Christian community in the first century Mediterranean world. His instructions to husbands and wives made perfect sense to the people he was writing at that time. But we need to review our interpretation in our current situation. You see, women here have the same education or potential as men, at least in the United States. Women here can enter the workplace and share careers with men. They are even in the military. Women here can not only survive, but they can thrive without a husband. None of those things existed when Paul was writing this at that time. And so we have to understand, again, the dynamics and how things have changed as we look into this passage so that we can interpret it in a way that's specific to our time and our culture. The contextual background, let's look a little bit at what we've been talking about here throughout the book of Ephesians. 
Paul took the book of Ephesians and he started kind of taking us on this uplifting tour of spirituality, right? He told us that in our lives fully lives the one who made the whole universe. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, he, he told us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, chapter 2, verse 6. He, he's connecting us to the work of God, that we are now the embodiment that God is going to use to minister to the world around us. In chapter 4, Paul began addressing spiritual practices, how we live in the world and in heavenly places at the same time. We've talked about the old man, the old self, the false self, the new man, the true man, the true self, and how we are to yield to this new man and not to this old man, taking on this new identity, adopting a, a lifestyle consistent with our spiritual status. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so we have been pulled into this spiritual life that is supposed to be something that is seen. It's not just something we feel. It's something that's evidenced by the way we live. Both the good and then the bad. The bad things pull us towards that old self. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. And that's what he's been leading us through, through this epistle. That we would be focused on our true, our new, our identity in him. More immediately, the context of the previous verses, Paul stressed knowing God's will. And as he talked about knowing God's will, he wanted us to be people who were representing God's will. The transition from just speaking God's will to now submitting. In verse 21, we see, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the context that we are in. Who are we as followers of Jesus? What is our status? What is our conduct? And we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But the context is still practice the knowledge of, or practice the knowing God's will. That's what we're talking about. How can we practice living in God's will, knowing God's will? And mutual submission is a recognition of this influence. All the members have their callings, their gifts. We learn to defer to their areas of capability. Everyone is of value. And so we recognize the value of each person as God has created them. And when it talks about submitting to one of them or to them in the reverence of Christ, what Paul is trying to do is get us to recognize the capacity of each person who is a part of God's body, who is a part of this work. And so what's Paul's objective? What is Paul trying to, to accomplish in this section? Well, let's read it here, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ, the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a son, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. 
What's Paul trying to accomplish in this section? What, what is his purpose? We can't take it away from the rest of what he's been saying. It goes right along with this understanding. And if we remove the underlining concern that Paul has, then we haven't just missed an important point. We've missed the big idea around which the whole letter is being written. Family living in this world participates in heavenly places living at the same time. Family living here on this world participates in heavenly living at the same time. How we conduct ourselves with the family is something that is supposed to be seen and give representation to living in participation in heavenly places. We are not separated. Well, one day I'm going to be with God and then everything's going to be good. No, you're supposed to live as if you are with God now because you are. You are seated in heavenly places now. That means your marriage is taking place in heavenly places or with a heavenly conduct now. And we need to understand this has been his whole point. Remember the old man you put away? You're living in this new man. Who's the new man? He's risen with Christ. You live in the heavenly realms. Your marriage is not just taking place on this earth. It is something that is representative in a heavenly way as well. And we've got to see Paul's spiritual vision behind his instructions to families. Our physical existence runs parallel to our spiritual existence. And this has been a problem in in the church in so many ways. We have separated the physical and the spiritual. One day we'll get to go to heaven. Then everything will be good. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is among you. We are supposed to live in the presence of God now. We are seated in heavenly places now. We are supposed to put off the old, take on the new now. Even as we talked about Colossians, whatever those things are, we are to think on these things. Our mind is supposed to be filled with the awareness of God in our life now. The kingdom of heaven is in our midst. When Jesus would talk about the kingdom of heaven, it wasn't one day when you would go there. It was also something that was taking place here. Oh, yes, it's coming, but it's also here. We are to recognize the presence of God in our lives daily. We are to enjoy the presence of God in our lives daily. We are to understand who we are in Christ now here. And not just sit by waiting. We are supposed to occupy, make the most of this time for the days are evil, he said, right? What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to represent heaven here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not someday, right now, we are supposed to bring that manifestation. What is the will of God? I'm supposed to live it out so that the will of God is supposed to be seen in my life, in your life, in the church, the body of Christ. And that's why we do the things that we do to represent who he is. We wait for our Lord and Savior to return. But in the meantime, we occupy till he comes. We do the works that he has called us to do. We live in his presence here and now. Our physical existence runs parallel to our spiritual existence, overlapping, intersecting, going hand in hand. And so in this section, Paul talks about Jesus more than he talks about either the wife or the husband. We've made this passage all about husbands and wives, but what it's really about is our relationship with Jesus as a husband or as a wife. It's not just about wives do this, husbands do this. It's that we are supposed to see Jesus in our lives and as our example. And so we have to see things in this way because he is talking really more about Jesus than either a husband or a wife. You know, people rarely talk about the self-disciplinary actions that a family needs. There was a monk in the 11th century who recognized how disciplined family people had to be. And he said to the other people who were part of the monastery, you know, when we want to pray at two in the morning, we can choose to pray or we can choose not to. 
But when a child cries at two in the morning, they don't have a choice whether they're going to get up or not. They have to. There is a discipline in family living that is greater than anything else. And if you've had children, you know what I'm talking about, right? They take of your time. They require your investment. You have to pour your life into them. They take your money. They take your food. They take your time. They take it all. It isn't like, well, you know what? I don't want to buy dinner for you guys today. I'd rather go see a movie. You don't have that choice. Well, you supposedly you do, but you see the constraints of family pulls you to make the decision because they've brought you to a place where now the self-discipline is required. I have to get up. There's, there's not a, a built-in absolute necessity to do so, except it comes with the family. You have to get up in the middle of the night. You have to take them to emergency. You have to answer those phone calls. You, you have to go and bail them out of the police department. You, you, you have to take care of these things. Why? Because they're my child and I have the responsibility. And so what we need to see is what Paul is doing here is taking this family unit and is validating it. It's saying this unit as a family, as husbands and wives, and later on we'll talk about the children next week, is something that is parallel going on with what God has been wanting to do. He's teaching us discipline. He's teaching us self-sacrifice. He's going to teach us how to be like Jesus, both as husbands and both as wives. And we need to recognize that because it's part of what the whole passage and the whole book is about. See, we could generalize the principles behind Paul's specific instructions in this way. Live with your spouse as you would with Christ. And live towards your spouse as if you were Christ. Let me repeat that again. Live with your spouse as you would with Christ and live toward your spouse as if you were Christ. Then see how your actions link with the Lord's. This isn't the last word on Christian marriage, and it's not the cure-all for troubled marriage. In fact, it's actually much more. It's something much deeper. This is dealing with life issues, not just marriage issues. But this isn't meant to be the, you know, you get a couple that comes in and they're having marital problems and you just say to the wife, you need to submit to your husband. says, my husband's a violent alcoholic. What does that look like? Okay, we have to take again, what's Paul trying to say? How is he dealing with it in this passage? What, what are we supposed to take with this and understand that it's not supposed to answer every problem in a marriage, but it's supposed to give us our character as we are married. And it's more about our lives than just our marriages. And so how Paul presents this to the church and to the wise specifically or particular is he starts off again in verse 21. Ephesians were to continue life together in mutual submission, cooperation rather than conflict or competition or domination. He doesn't say take control of others. You see, that's the characteristics of a cult. They want to handle things. They want to be domineering. They want to manipulate everything. But Paul's encouragement to everyone is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He doesn't say take control of others, submit to one another. If you want to drive your family away from God, then try to drive them to God. If you constantly preach at them, if you're constantly forcing them and nagging them, it will backfire on you. Because submission is a voluntary process. It's a choice. Never does Christ force anybody to submit to him. Never. 
anywhere. And, and I've been with couples and I've been talking with them and I had a situation where the husband did have a, a drinking problem and did get violent. And he pulled this scripture out and he told his wife, she needs to submit to me. I'm the head. And I'm like, back off, buddy. You are not representing Jesus here. And are you submitting to your wife? Because it says before any of this, it's supposed to be submit to one another. How are you submitting to your wife? And how are you representing Jesus? By drinking and being out of control. And now hitting your kids and doing these things. Don't give me this. She has to submit to you when you do not look anything like Jesus. I got real upset because here was someone trying to use scripture to validate their sin. Basically, I have the right. I want you to submit to me. That is not what this passage is saying at all. And how dare you try to get God to back your behavior when it doesn't look anything like Jesus. Because the whole point of this passage is that you are to take your life and put it parallel and act as if you were Jesus and to treat people as you would Jesus. And you're not doing any of those things. This allows us to withdraw our submission if we want to. Not even Jesus is going to violate our free will not to follow him. Remember when he spoke to his disciples and he said, in John chapter 6, you do not want to leave too, do you? He asked them, do you want to leave also? And of course, Peter said, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But we see here that Jesus gives them, we see the unique view of his authority with his disciples. Here is Jesus saying, you better not leave. You're my disciples. This is what we're doing. He asks them, do you want to leave too? It's as if he's saying, you have the freedom. What are you going to choose? In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 44, Jesus called them together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Now, this with you includes husbands. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when it talks about submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ... Reverence for Christ promotes reverence for others because this is the example of Christ. We revere God's image in them, Christ's likeness and the true person. And so we submit to one another out of respect to Christ because that is the example that Jesus has given to us. We revere God's image and we see it in the other person. Paul carries the theme of submission into this area of marriage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I think we've been misled by this metaphor regarding husbands as the head. When we think of the head, we think of a head of state or a head of a corporation. That would be, you know, the person in charge, the decision maker, our boss. But the Greek word refers to the top of a crown or the head or cornerstone. The chief cornerstone in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, the stone that holds things together. And so some people actually interpret it. The head is suggestive of unity. You are the one who is supposed to be uniting, bringing unity to these things. And so in Ephesians chapter four, we kind of see this example in verses 15 and 16. Where he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect a ma- the mature body for of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So there is the purpose of the head holding them all together. 
not lording over them, not ruling over them, not the boss of all, not the one who makes all the decisions, but the one who helps hold everything together. That's the point. We use it in reference to, you know, that style instead of the authority. Christ is not only the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. And this is how Jesus, as the head of the church, acts on the behalf of others, of us. He holds us together. He he brings salvation to us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. The goal is for husband and wife to develop a cooperative relationship. It recovers the original design of partnership and companionship found in Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will bring a helper suitable for him. I will bring someone alongside him to complete him. Verse 25, he goes on and he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish but holy and blameless. For this relationship to work, the husband must act as Jesus. Jesus acted in love. How that looked in practice, he gave himself up for her. Love isn't just a romantic feeling, but it's a way of behaving. A husband can't say, I love my wife, and then neglect her. That's not love. Notice how these verses are more a description of Jesus than instructions to the husband. It's more describing who Jesus is. Why? Because that's our example to live. Now, he's giving this as an example to the husbands, but it's an example to the wives. It's an example to all of us. The husband does not do all of this for his wife. He doesn't sanctify her. That's Jesus' job. He serves her in other ways, mostly in material and ordinary ways. But the point is, a husband's care must reflect the same love and attention as Christ. Jesus prepares us for himself. He sanctifies us, makes us holy. The washing of water with the word, the word there is that's used is rima. It means a word spoken. It's a word that is dynamic of speech, direct and flexible. This is a word Jesus speaks to us when the scriptures become alive and personal, our becoming holy and blameless is the Lord's project in us. So we never need to despair when we see how far we are from him because we know he is speaking and working in our lives to draw us to himself. That is what we're supposed to represent. There's a lot of people who believe that the washing of water has to do with dealing with a woman's impurities through the Jewish tradition. There were times where a woman was actually unclean and could not go in to worship. But that's changed. You see, the place now, the temple, is not the Holy of Holies. It's our bodies. And a woman's body is the temple of God, just like a man's body is the temple of God. And so she is not ceremonially unclean any longer. And so the washing of water by the word is the the truth that we have of who Jesus is. There is no more uncleanliness. I heard an amazing talk by Erwin, and he was talking about baptism and the Ethiopian eunuch and how the Ethiopian eunuch is there on the chariot and, and Philip comes up to him and hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. And you have to remember, a eunuch was probably castrated at about 14 years of age and was not enabled to worship because of that. He could not go into the temple and worship because he would be considered defiled. And so Philip starts telling him about Jesus and the amazing work that Jesus did. And who is the one who said, well, what's stopping me from being baptized? It wasn't Philip. It was the Ethiopian eunuch. And you see what he did is he said, If what you have told me about Jesus is true, then I want to be baptized now. 
What I want is what you're saying. If what you say is true, then it applies to me here and now. So I have the right to be baptized. If your Jesus is true, I want you to baptize me. What an amazing thing. Someone says, you have to baptize me. Because what you said about Jesus is true for me. Even though I am a eunuch, even though this has happened to me, even though this is the lot I've been dealt with in life, I have the right to the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. I want to be baptized. What a powerful statement. A woman who could not go into the temple because she was unclean. She is no longer unclean. She is washed by the water of the word. Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all our sins. She has access to God anytime she wants. Don't you dare think otherwise. That's what Paul is presenting here. He's wanting us to recognize the position we have in Jesus because of what Jesus has done. Again, this is more about Jesus than it is husbands. And and he cuts through this very clearly in verse 28. He says, and in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own flesh, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church. He kind of cuts through the husband's laziness here. The the care husbands show our wives is nothing less than we show for our own bodies. Okay, the first recorded words of Adam that were spoken in that poetry to Eve is this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What do we do for ourselves? If we're hungry, we eat. If we're cold, put on a coat. It's pretty simple. And if you actually love each other, like Paul commands, the last thing you're going to be doing is arguing about who's in control. If you're arguing about that, then you have lost the point of marriage. In essence, you you shrink yourself so that something greater than you, your marriage, can grow and thrive. We, We shrink our own... Pride. We, we, we shrink our own desires so that something more important, the marriage, can thrive. That's the point. You should love your wife as you do your own body. Now, what, what's interesting in this whole passage here is wives submitting to their husband, that probably wouldn't even meant anything to them. They probably would have heard that like, yeah, I, I, what's well, new? But husbands loving your wife, that would have stood out. She's not just there for you to have children. She's not just there for you to take care of your home. She is a part of this new humanity of Christ, just as we read at the beginning. There's neither male nor female. We are one in Christ. And so it would have really stood out. And verse 30 He goes on, he says, for we are members of his body. Notice it says we are members of his body. That's male and female. For this reason, a man leaves father and mother and will be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. It's kind of interesting because Paul keeps going back and forth. He jumps from Christ to the church to husbands to wives, then back again. And the intimate union within marriage illustrates the great mystery, namely Jesus' oneness with his church. A close relationship. What's the closest relationship we can have here on earth? Well, it should be that of a marriage. I'm closer to my wife than anyone else. Why? She knows all my junk. She does. And I know hers, too. We know our weaknesses. We've been through hell and back. We've gone through a lot together. We've been a strength to each other. We've had to grow together. We've been hurt by each other. There's been a lot that's take place in that relationship. It's the closest relationship I have. It's the closest relationship two people can have. And it's a picture of Christ in the church. So the question is, what kind of picture is your marriage? Is it a good one or is it a bad one? 
Are, are you treating them like Christ? And are you acting like Christ to them? Because that's what it needs to be. Jesus' oneness is seen more clearly in marriage than in any other relationship. The unity and oneness are held together by love, by respect, performing our daily duties to spouse and family members. It might not feel spiritual, but it is. We are not concerned with how caring for others makes us feel. We have to be there as much as possible. Not because it feels good, because it's my responsibility. It's because I want this relationship to grow. And you see, this is true spirituality. It's the extraordinary wrapped in the ordinary. It's a glimpse of a spiritual reality reflected in this material world. It is a chance for people to see what a relationship with God looks like when they see what relationship with each other look like. That marriage is supposed to be that kind of an example. And it's a lot of work. But what it's doing or what it should be doing is working in us. And whenever someone says from this passage, tell my wife or tell my husband to, they're missing the point. No, it's not about them doing for you. It's about you being for them. It's not given so you can use it against them. It's used so you can mirror yourself and see how do I reflect God in my relationship with my husband or my wife. That's what this passage is about. It's not about the men get to be the boss, they get to make all the rules, they get to say all the things. That's not the leadership that Christ led by example. And so we need to recognize that it's about the unity. It's about caring. It's about loving. It's about maintaining a relationship that people can see. Paul is trying to establish the importance of a home. That this is supposed to be a place where God can work in our lives. Why? Because it is probably the most important place in our lives. Usually we have three spheres of influence. We have work where we have to go and do our nine to five. We might have, you know, some extracurricular activity we like, like bowling or hunting or, you know, whatever that is, playing baseball. You know, you you do something outside, but then the third one is your home. And that's supposed to be the one that's the closest. That's the one that's supposed to be more important. And what Paul is saying is this area of your life, this sphere of your life, God needs to be there. He's not just at the church. Oh, yeah, I go to church. I do my service. Man, they love me there. I'm such a nice guy at church. And then come home. And then the truth is no. I mean, oh gosh, some of the stories Karina and I could tell uh, of just being at church. You know, I, I mean, I worked at the church for years and I'd be there and I can remember sitting there and I'd be leading worship and I'd be singing some, you know, kumbaya song about Jesus. And I'd see my wife and the four kids go like a hurricane down the hallway and she would stop and catch eyes with me like, you don't know what I've been through to get here today. You know, and I'm just like, yes, God, everything's wonderful. And I know what's going on in her life. And I'm thinking, man, who is the one who's carrying this family right now? It's not me doing the singing. Oh, everyone's looking. Oh, Sam, he's, he's up there singing. Oh, how beautiful. It's my wife who's carrying all them kids and going to the classrooms. See, she was the one holding us together. She was the one representing Jesus and serving. I was getting to sing. How hard is that? You know, I pick up a guitar. Yes, yeah, so I'm serving you, God. It's so difficult. And there she goes with four little ones. You see, it, it's supposed to work hand in hand. Spirituality in our lives, they intersect, they cross over. And our marriage is supposed to be a place where that happens. And that's what Paul is trying to bring in the dynamic. We haven't changed from the purpose of this whole passage. It's Christ working in you, in your life, putting off the old, bringing on the new. That's what's taking place. And now he's telling us it needs to take place at your home. 
as well. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the encouragement this passage is, Father, for us as husbands and wives, Lord, that, God, what you're trying to do is build character. Lord, you're you're not saying that we have to do this or we can't do that. Lord, submission is always voluntary, Lord. What you're challenging us to do is to care more about something bigger than ourselves, that we would lose our identity in you and not try and hold on to it, Lord, that we'd be willing to give up of ourselves even as you gave up of yourself. And Lord, I I pray for the marriages that are here. I, I pray, God, that this would be a foundation of where you begin to shape us. Lord, we want to be genuine. We want to be those who who call on your name and live it everywhere. And Lord, sometimes that's a mess. Sometimes it it looks rough and sometimes it isn't as pretty as we would want it to be. But that's where it has to start. It has to start where we are who we really are. And Lord, that usually takes place in the area of our marriages. And so I pray for the husbands, Lord, that as they see their wives, that they would see them as we see you and as they act towards their wives, that they would act towards them as we act towards you. And we ask the same thing, Lord, for the wives who are here, that they would see their husbands as they see you and that they would treat their husbands as you would treat them. And that in this most vulnerable part of our lives, we would represent you in this most genuine part of our lives, who we really are, where we really show up, you would show up in us and that you would be evident there to those around us, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone have any questions about about this passage or any things that I said? Maybe you're not sure. So you're talking about a cultural thing. You realize that at the time that Paul wrote this, all the women worked. They were all slaves. Yeah. So when it talks about like women being homemakers and we think of it, oh, yeah, women get to stay home and cook and bake cookies. No, they were slaves. They were baking cookies, but it wasn't for them. It was for, you know, whoever else it was. They were out, you know, working in the fields. They did a lot of things. So it wasn't like they didn't have a job. They didn't work. That was a a, a Western thing later on. It was a cultural thing. And, and that's, again, where we have to take the specifics and we have to kind of find out where they fit in our culture. Well, in the United States, well, and actually there was time even in the farming where a lot of women did a whole lot of work at the farms and things. But yeah, in, a, in the you know industrial aspect of this culture, that took place. But again, at this time when Paul is writing this, the women worked. You know, they made tents, they did things with clothes, they were slaves. Yeah, most of the women were slaves. I know, we, we lose focus and then we, we take what the scripture is saying, apply it to what we know of our culture, and we make it norm, okay? But we have to remember how the culture is affecting us and where the scripture is able to transcend all cultures. You know, the truth that's there needs to transcend all cultures. It wasn't written just for the first century. Yeah, it's mutual sacrifice. It's mutual, it's again, it's serving something bigger than yourself the marriage you you take your marriage and say this commitment this covenant that we've made to each other before god is more important than me this covenant is going to i'm going to serve so that it it continues and it succeeds you know jesus said about divorce it's because of the hardness of your heart you know, the divorce is allowed because people harden their hearts. What is that? They're, they're not wanting to give of themselves to something else. They're wanting to just, you know, live their own life. And so if, if that answers the question. Yeah, and it depends because there's different parts of the culture. There were some areas of culture in the Roman culture where the women were priestesses in religious ceremonies, and they actually had a respect as a religious authority 
And so when Paul would say something, and we're not in that passage now where he would say, wives should be quiet, women should be quiet in church, he's talking, again, in a specific cultural setting where the women were the ones who were the voices for the gods at that time. And so in the Jewish culture, very much true. In the Roman culture, it was split. If you were a harlot in a, in a uh, place of worship, you had all kinds of authority. Think of what that does to a society. You want to be somebody, hey, you can be a priestess of you know, Diana, and then it, you can get a little more power and authority. So again, we have to kind of look at that. But overall, in the whole Roman Empire and in the Jewish culture, yeah, women were definitely considered in some places property. And so Christianity did really bring about this idea of unity. To that passage that I started off with, where he talks about there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, that's incredible. At that time, that's incredible. To equate women and men at the same was revolutionary, by all means. Any other questions? Yeah, I mean, the wife has as much right to initiate prayer as the husband. It's like, that's your job. Okay, I'm sorry, I was up at 5 this morning going to work, and I came home and took the kids to practice and got home. Sorry, I didn't initiate prayer. I forgot. Can I go pass out now? You know, I mean, it could be, you know, again, the dynamic is how can we encourage each other? And the wife has as much voice as the husband. Well, it's, I don't know, there's a lot of fun stories you could go in here, but I don't know if I want to go into all of that. Um, you know, a lot of times we use these places to our advantage. You know, so a woman might say, you're supposed to be the head. You're supposed to do these things. But she has no problem telling him what to do in other areas of her eye, right? Not, not you, dear, but, you know, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny. It's like, well, this will show up when I want you to do certain things, but I have no problem bossing you around when I want you to do other things. <laughs> We better stop now. <laughs> we have some cookies back there. We even have pumpkin cream cheese cookies that my daughter made and dropped off to us just now. So, and then chocolate chip. Mauricio brought the chocolate chip cookies. We've got other cookies and we have coffee. You could be sugared and caffeine and not go to sleep tonight. So and enjoy each other's company and enjoy the goodies. And thank you guys for coming.